Welcome to The Alchemical Mind. My name is Martin. Now today we're doing part two of the series on authority. And there will actually be one more part. I will be joined by a friend of mine, DJ Briggs, and we're going to talk... Actually, we're going to be discussing The Matrix, which should be interesting. That episode is already recorded, and I will tell you, even though the main topic of the episode is The Matrix... We barely talk about the movie uh, because we dive into some of the themes involved within and uh, kind of bring them into the discussion that we've been doing here on the podcast. So should be a fun one that'll be out in two days. So today is Friday. It'll be out on Sunday. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't yet to check that out. Now, today we're going to be talking about authority and religion. And I've decided to talk about authority and religion over doing an authority in politics, for example, because really the purpose of this podcast is to dive into some of these philosophical and theological concepts. And if we stick purely on politics, uh, I'll be honest, I would be slightly bored. And I would assume that many of you would as well. Because if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you have some kind of impetus to improve yourself and possibly your spirituality. And so I want to kind of stick to that topic and uh, as you guys know, if you've been listening for a couple of episodes, if not welcome, one of my favorite sayings is actually a Buddhist saying, should be no surprise. And, you know, that saying is, if you meet the Buddha in the forest, kill him. And that's, of course, a key aspect of understanding the role that authority plays within religion. And when I say religion, I want you to understand that I mean more than simply just Christianity and Islam and Judaism and Jainism and Buddhism and Taoism, Hinduism and any other ism that you can think of. Religion isn't simply just a set of beliefs to guide you into somehow realizing God or attaining some relationship with God. There's many other ways that we involve ourselves in religion on a day-to-day -day basis, including aspects of society that we might not deem as religious. For example, science. Science is really interesting because to me, science has become somewhat a religion. Just like mystical thoughts end up being translated into dogma and thereby become a religion, science has kind of done the same thing. There are essential tenets of... Ah, oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about the word tenet, uh, which of course means to know. Interesting. Okay, so science does have some central tenets. And, and those tenets ultimately are not religious at all. And you could argue the same is true for mystical experience. That's why once we're done with the series on authority, which will be uh, in a few days, we'll be done with it this coming week, uh, we'll be diving into aspects of mysticism, which I think are actually much more interesting. When things go from simply presenting concepts into instituting dogma, they automatically become religion. And that is true, of course, of science as well. When you cannot see beyond the particular point because you're stuck on your way of doing things, the way that you were taught to do them, you are involved in a religion and not simply a belief system. So science is a religion in many respects. Politics has become a religion. You know, you have uh, lefts, you have rightists, you have centrists, you have communists, you have socialists, you have capitalists, you have neo-capitalists, you have neco-capitalists, you have anti-fascists, you have fascists. All these things are simply, have become religions. 
And that's the reason why I wanted to use the term religion in this episode, as opposed to separating this out between religion and politics. Now let's go back to the Buddhist saying that I brought up earlier. When you meet the Buddha in the forest, kill him. What, what does that mean? Ultimately, that's the way to actually regain our authority within certain religious figures, right? And again, remember, we'll be using the term religion as an all-encompassing term of fervent dogma and belief. Ultimately, what it means is that if you find someone in the forest that says that they are the Buddha, you don't physically kill them. It's a saying, it's a metaphor. What it means is that you analyze them, you tear it down to the core basic concepts. To analyze for yourself, use your own authority to see if that person truly is a Buddha. And of course, Buddhists and, you know, non-dualists, people that follow Advaita, for example, uh, Taoists, people that are involved in this type of belief system that use this language to talk about some sort of enlightenment. They all have this concept, and we don't necessarily have this concept in the Western world. Now, if you're in one of these belief systems, then stay with me. But two-thirds of the people on the, that listen to this podcast are in the United States, uh, and actually about 80% of people that listen are in the Western world. So I assume that you're involved in some kind of Western doctrine, uh, Judeo-Christian, maybe Islamic as well. One thing that all these belief systems always say is that if you say to someone, hey, I'm enlightened, or you're a person that follows somebody that's a religious figure of some sort, some authority figure, in whatever belief system you're in, you might say, oh, that person's so enlightened, they're so calm, so peaceful, they have so much knowledge and wisdom. Of course, automatically by doing this kind of thing, you are giving up your authority to that person. But interestingly enough, it works the other way around. Because if someone were to say that, yes, I'm enlightened, I've achieved some sort of nirvana, right, that final breath, right? that's what nirvana means, the, the, sigh, the last sigh, <sighs> release of breath, that's nirvana. If you have some, some sort of satori experience, if that person is able to say, well, yes, I've achieved enlightenment, I'm here to tell you that person is not enlightened. In fact, that person is probably the opposite of enlightened. Because in order to achieve a true enlightenment, a true awakening experience involves the dissolution of the ego. And if you have the ego to say, yes, I've achieved the ultimate reality, then chances are you don't know that. Now, this is, of course, very important within a religious context, but it applies to science and politics and every other aspect of society. So keep that in mind as I dive to some of these examples, and don't simply keep your mind on a religion. Keep that in mind. Think of this as an overall belief system. It just so happens, though, that many times people that have some sort of awakening experience end up having a severe amount of ego backlash. And oftentimes, the only way to deal with the ego backlash is to become more egotistical. Seems a little counterintuitive, but that's the way that we work. Because when you get a little bit of knowledge, when you know nothing and you get a little bit of knowledge, now you feel like you know the entirety of being. And this is particularly true if you have a very, very significant enlightenment experience. 
it's much tougher with powerful mystical awakening to understand that this is beyond your ability to comprehend. And therefore, we have to find a way to understand it. And the only way for understand it is in terms of what it is that we base ourselves to be. And of course, ultimately, that is ego. It is a self. Now, if I tell you there is no self, some of you, of course, naturally have an apprehension to that. Of course, I have a self. I'm an individual person. I'm different from you, Martin. I'm different from my spouse and my child and my coworker and my preacher and my imam. And we're all different people. And in some ways, that's true. In some ways, you are different people. But that is not the ultimate reality of things. The ultimate reality of things, and you are, you're simply an expression of a higher self manifesting itself within a reality and experiencing different aspects of itself. Now, this is hard to comprehend for a lot of people because the thing is, we, we live in this world where we are all different people. But think about it even just simply within yourself, right? You are not a, a lone individual. You are not just one thing. You are made up of many, many parts. And you, you have members, right? So you have your limbs, head, right? arms, legs, and those things have parts within themselves. So your hands have fingers, and your fingers have knuckles and, and fingertips and nails, and those things are made out of parts, right? You have cells within those things, groups of cells, and those things have parts, right? The cells have organelles, so you have a nucleus. And you know the the chromosomes and all all this kind of stuff. You down to DNA, right? All these things are made up of DNA, and DNA is made up of different chemicals. And those chemicals are made up of different molecules, and those molecules are made up of different elements. And then the elements go down into quarks and neutrons and protons, etc. Right? You have all these particles that science comes up with, and at some point it stops. But really, it doesn't stop. It just continues on to infinity. The thing is, these things become so small that we can no longer see beyond them. You know, scientists can hypothesize certain elementary particles that make up what we consider material reality. But there's only so far you can go in, right? If we have an electric microscope, that means you can go down as far as an electron. Well, how do you see beyond an electron if the smallest part of your microscope is just an electron? You can't, right? So you come up with experiments right there's there's tons of these experiments all around the world particle accelerators things like that which try to analyze these elementary particles and come up with new theoretical ones some you know people get excited when they hear about the god particle and then you know the god particle may or may not be true right the god particle is something that gives uh, mass mass the particle that gives us mass and you know what about beyond that you have up quarks down quarks left quarks upside down quarks i don't know there's all kinds of different particles and the thing is, the more you keep looking for these things, the more you find these things to exist. That's why we'll never know the entirety of creation, because there's always going to be more beyond it. And that's extremely difficult for anybody to comprehend, regardless of how many degrees you have, how much studying you've done within religion and philosophy and science of any kind. There's always going to be more to learn. So the thing we have to realize is, how much, at what point do we stop worrying about the ultimate features of reality and just simply learn to exist? This is very much related to the subject of authority because, as I've said before many times, it's very easy to follow what other people are saying because when you do that, 
you no longer need to worry about taking responsibility for your own actions because those actions have nothing to do with you. They're ultimately simply predicated on how outside forces react upon you. But if I tell you that there are no outside forces because you are it, the kingdom of God is within you and without you and all around you, that's a tough pill to swallow. It's a very tough pill to swallow. And the thing is, it could deal you down into some rabbit holes that may make it even tougher to swallow. And we'll be talking a little bit about this as we talk about the red pill, blue pill process in The Matrix with DJ on that episode in a couple days. And one thing that we mentioned is, what if Morpheus had told Neo, for example, hey, if you take the blue pill, this is exactly what's going to happen. If you take the red pill, this is exactly what's going to happen. Where you have a way to make a more informed choice. Would the choice have been the same? That's, that's tough to say because we don't have that information. But yes, we can speculate about the possible reaction and how the movie would have evolved from that, but that's not what we have. Not what we have. you got to think of, of life itself, of your personal experience on a day-to-day basis as, as simply a, a frame and an infinite reel frame in an infinite reel. And if you thought the the example that I gave about the infinite circle on in the previous episode, if you didn't listen to that, go check that out, in which I, I made you imagine what an infinite circle would look like, it's going to be even harder for you to figure out what an infinite movie reel would look like. Nearly impossible. Because now I'm not just talking about a one specific shape. I'm talking about Groups of events appearing and happening all at the same time with no connection to each other, but all in a string of successive events. And that's impossible to explain in just a a language created to analyze a physical material world that has limitations. I might do an episode on kind of how I feel the, the nature of the divine is that the nature of God is. But I've explained several quotes like Pseudo Dionysus has a great quote about that, about the, the magnitude of God. But it can be hard to figure out exactly what that is too, because it is so magnificent, magnanimous. And some folks, when I say things like everybody's one, you know, we're just physical manifestations of just one particular aspect of a divine being. Some people might think, well, I'm being a nihilist, I'm being a solipsist, and maybe some of that is true. But that's not digging deeper, deep enough into the, the topic at hand because you don't have the understanding of what it means, of what it is. And I'm not saying that I do either. But if you start thinking about these things, the answer is actually much simpler than you believe it is. It's so interesting that we always try to overcomplicate our lives. We always try to get more and more things. And all that gives us is more and more problems. You know, not to quote a, a hip-hop song, but you know, there's that song 99 Problems, but a lady ain't one. That's not the correct terminology used in the song. But what's the reason for that? Why do we have 99 problems? Because we're simply not content with ourselves. And that's so crazy to think about. So crazy to think about. I was having this conversation with, I can't remember where it was, it might have been on Discord, on the Mind Escape Discord. You know, one of the things that always comes up with 
alternate archaeology. I guess I guess that's the terminology. I'm not sure. With with folks that research the possible hidden history of of mankind, one of these sayings that always comes up is that we are a species with amnesia, and I think it's it's a fantastic saying because not only do we have amnesia for our deep history, because number one, it's not written. Number two, we've lost the ability to tell stories to each other even though we still tell stories they've become more metaphorical and allegorical and they're not they're not true passing of knowledge and, and memory we just come up with fantastical stories to kind of illustrate a point our memory and our history has become dogma and so using the term a species with amnesia, I think it's fantastic. But one thing that I brought up also is that not only are we a species with amnesia, again, remember, we forget very quickly. I gave the example of 9-11 on, on the previous episode, and that's only been you know less than 20 years ago. And we forget the lessons that we learned there. Think about the lessons we learned 100 years ago, 1,000, 2,000 years ago. 5,000 years ago. Now we're heading to the limit of written history, right? Well, what about 10,000 years ago or 20 or 50, 100, 500,000 years ago, 750,000 years ago? How could it be that we've lived for such a long time? Now granted, yes, it's just a little speck. It's a little frame in the infinite real. But for a species that lives, say, 75 years on average, you're talking about multiple orders of magnitude beyond the existence of one single person and yet we assume we're, we're taught that all of our knowledge comes from the past four or five thousand years of our existence that seems ludicrous it seems ludicrous how do you come up with say a calendar system in which you can predict 26,000 year cycles processional cycles if you have lost if you if you only have history for five thousand years now some of that, of course, yes, we can do now with computers, but what about before computers? How do you come up with that? You have to have that knowledge being passed on from generation to generation for hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years in order to make those assessments. And yet here we are. We assume, we're told, that we've only been around for 5,000 years. Right? All, of, all of technological advancement has only occurred within 5,000 years. One thing that I find really interesting, again, is not just the species with amnesia, but that we are a species with severe, severe personal trauma. Severe personal trauma. And I have no inkling whatsoever as to what happened in our past that has given us such mental dysmorphia, such hatred for ourselves and for realizing the, the eternal magnitude, the magic, just... Think about how magical it is that you exist. The impossibility, the statistical impossibility that not only do you exist, but you exist in a subsequent series of events. You begin to realize the magnitude of distance between galaxies and the magnitude of distance that encompasses the entire universe and all, all of being and creation. What could have possibly happened to people that this becomes deeply ingrained within our psyche. And we refuse to accept the knowledge that we are God, that we are it. There has to have been some severe trauma in the past. And again, I don't know what that is. And I don't know why it persists. But it was obviously a very deep, deep psychological trauma. 
the part of me wonders if some of that has to do with the appearance of consciousness within humanity. And of course, human consciousness is somewhat different than when we use terminology like a, an ultimate consciousness, right? The ultimate self. But it is related because it, it emerges out of that primal consciousness. You know, this is nothing new and, you know, you can go into science and some of the scientific terminology might be different, but ultimately the words used, you can easily translate into something like, well, universe just came out of conscious being. When the universe became conscious is when material reality came about. You could use that terminology, right? The science might use different words, right? You might have like the Big Bang, uh, which interestingly enough is not really very scientific. It comes from the cosmic egg, which is a, a, a concept that has been around for thousands of years, the cosmic egg. Now, what if we are simply one cosmic egg among a basket full of concept, cosmic eggs? And what if that basket is just simply one basket in a truck full of baskets? Have you ever considered that? The, the possible magnitude of this, where the universe is just one egg within a, a, a basket. What if, what if there is some immensely infinite supermarket where immensely infinite beings go shopping for eggs and those eggs are simply our very own big bang cosmic egg you can think about this it might be a futile exercise of course because you would never be able to experience that level of infinity and really once you experience one infinity there's no difference between that one infinity and multiple levels of infinity even though yes believe it or not been mathematically proven you can have some infinities be larger than other infinities. And again, when I go into talking about DLF, that Borges book that I mentioned uh, an episode or two ago, we will be talking about this again, because it's a very fascinating concept. You can have one infinity be larger than another. Now, I do want to get back to some of the idea behind authority and religion. So let's, let me tell a story. In fact, I'm going to tell two stories. One that some of you may be familiar with, and one that some of you may not. So there is, uh, I'm sure some of you have read like uh, Grimm's Fairy Tales. There's also Aesop's Fables. So I wanna, I wanna bring one of the versions of Aesop's Fables, and it's the story of the lion, the donkey, and the fox. And I will have two alternate stories behind this to kind of illustrate how even simply a story, a piece of scripture. A, a message from a, a teacher, a guru, a prophet, whatever you might, terminology you want to use, can be so different depending on how that story is told. So this is one of the original Aesop's fables, and it goes, A lion and a donkey and a fox joined as partners, promising to go hunting together. They made a big catch, and the lion ordered the donkey to divide it among them. Making three equal portions, the donkey asked him to choose. But the lion was infuriated, feasted upon the donkey, and then ordered the fox to make the division. The fox put everything into one pile, leaving just a tiny bit for herself, and told the lion to choose. When the lion asked her how she learned to apportion things in this way, the fox replied, from the donkey's misfortune. Now many times this is exactly how authority works within institutionalized systems, such as politics, science, religion, etc., but let's take a look at an alternate version of the story that's very much the same with just one added line that makes a huge difference. 
So Rumi, a poet that I've been discussing quite a bit on the podcast since the beginning, has a, his own version of the story of the lion, the donkey, and the fox. A lion took a wolf and a fox with him on a hunting excursion and succeeded in catching a wild ox, an ibex, and a hare. He then directed the wolf to divide the prey. The wolf proposed to award the ox to the lion, the ibex to himself, and the hare to the fox. The lion was enraged with the wolf because he had assumed to talk of I and thou and my share and thy share, when it all belonged of right to the lion, and he slew the wolf with one blow of his paw. Then turning to the fox, he ordered him to make the division. The fox, rendered weary by the fate of the wolf, replied that the whole should be the portion of the lion. The lion, pleased with his self-abnegation, gave it all up to him, saying, Thou art no longer a fox, but myself. Isn't it interesting? This is kind of how different belief systems come about, right? Because you have some people that maybe come up with the same story, they grew up reading the same story, and then maybe they forget pieces of that story or purposely choose to change parts of that story in order to aggrandize themselves. Because think about the story that I just read. If we don't have the final line, the lion, pleased with the self-abnegation, gave it all up to him, saying, Thou art no longer a fox but myself. If that line existed in the original, we would have basically the same exact meaning. And yet we don't have it, so the way that the story ends is more negative. It tells us that we should be subservient, that we should give up our authority to someone in power. And that's why I like the animals chosen, because not only are they different sized animals, going from largest to smallest, but also from, in particular with Rumi's version, from most dangerous to least dangerous. You know, the lion has always been kind of a metaphor, symbol for power, for nobility, royalty. And this is exactly the reason, because you know, it's a very large cat. If you've ever seen a lion in person, you realize how big it is. It's probably bigger than many of you listening to this podcast. It's a gigantic animal and very ferocious. Well, you could argue maybe the female lion, the, the lioness, is more ferocious than the male. But it seems like a very regal animal, a very large, powerful animal. And so it's used in a lot of metaphors, not just within Rumi, but you know Christianity uses the lion metaphor quite a bit as well. Many others do. But that single final line shows us the difference and why Rumi is really such a special writer. Because the lion isn't driven by ego in the, in the second story. He's not driven by, by self-gain, by wanting to control. The lion is simply a metaphor for God or an ultimate self. The lion could be one aspect of a three-part aspect of one single person being represented by a lion, a wolf, and a fox. Right? The number three is very important in, in a lot of mystical systems, a lot of social systems. The reason for that are probably beyond this. I've heard several theories. Uh, you know, I've heard something about even just a basic class division system consisting of, of three parts. And, and this is why the number three has become so important. I would say that it goes even beyond that. I think that's too simplistic an answer. But we'll, we'll get there at some point. I think when, we, when I start talking about some of the, the Egyptian magic and demonology stuff that I've been reading about lately, uh, we'll, we'll get into the importance of, of the number three, and we'll, we'll definitely tie it into some of the other systems around the world as well. That were no longer a fox by myself. How, how interesting, right? This is not a story about following the leader. 
of giving everything you have to an other. It is about realizing that you are the other. You are the other. And when the wolf realizes that he is just like the lion, the lion gives him his entire share because they are the same. They are one. The, the wolf has realized that he is it. Now, this idea, of course, extends beyond just Rumi and the, the, the Sufi school of, of Islam. It extends to, to many other schools all around the world, different traditions. That's why I always think it's important for you to realize what the mystical core of all these belief systems are. Because that's when you truly begin to understand the vast amount of knowledge and wisdom contained in the texts that sometimes become a little dumbed down so you know the majority can understand it. You don't want to understand it in that way because when you do, you lose all your authority. You are no longer in charge of your own life. You are simply following the guidelines of others. And yes, of course, it's important to have some kind of belief system. It's very important. That's the only way for us to be able to traverse the craziness that is daily life. But I would argue it's only crazy because we allow ourselves to be instilled with these rules and regulations that deny who you are at the very core. That's why I wanted to do this series on authority because I think ultimately that is the most important lesson that any mystical system and tradition could teach. I do want to read a little passage from the Gospel of Thomas. Now, the Gospel of Thomas is not in the Bible. It is, I mean, depending who you ask, it's either a Gnostic text or a proto-Gnostic text. I don't think anyone considers it like purely a, a Christian text. So, you know, if you're if you're a hardcore Christian, maybe this won't have much meaning to you. You probably never read it before. However, the, the, the Gospel of Thomas is one of my favorite, just one of my favorite texts. Period, religious texts, uh, definitely one of the one of my favorite Gnostic texts, and and a very short piece that really has a lot of meanings. And 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 if you've never read it, the the Gospel of Thomas is written very different than the traditional Gospels that you find in the Bible, right? Like Luke, and very different. It is actually a, a series of sayings uh, from Jesus. Some have compared this to like the Q document, right? So there was this theoretical piece of, of Gospel of, of Scripture that may have been written very early on in Christian thought that was the basis for the four canonical Gospels. And that's why a lot of the Gospels have the same words and ideas within them, even if they stray from each other in certain aspects of the story. And so theoretically, Q, uh, Gospel of Thomas could have been this Q. I think maybe that's possibly been debunked. Maybe there was never a Q. Uh, you know, there's different ideas of when this was written, first century, second, third. Uh, it's still fairly early on within Christian doctrine. And, and the thing about Gnostic ideas is there's no such thing as Gnosticism, right? This has become like a, a terminology and an all-encompassing thing, but there were no people that themselves called themselves Gnostics. Because Gnosticism is not inherently a Christian idea. Gnosticism has been something that's been around for all of human history. You, know, you could consider Buddhists to be Gnostics in some sense. You could consider many different sects and, and religious cults possibly uh to be gnostic in origin you consider even like the greek mysteries to be gnostic in many respects 
because ultimately being Gnostic is about understanding and knowing the true knowledge of the self. It has nothing to do with being any particular religion, worshiping any particular god, and I would even say to worship at all. And sometimes we have these ideas of how things are based on previous experiences that we've had, and we, we tie some kind of religious meaning and context to them when they really don't necessarily need to have any. I've talked a little bit about how I'm doing this mindfulness course. I'm, be I'm becoming certified to be a mindfulness coach. And, and one of the things that's implied in the first lesson is don't think of this as you know a, a Buddhist idea or Hindu idea or Das idea. Just the, the ideas themselves are inherently about human nature and about how our mind works and how we fool our own minds to see things in a way that they are not. Mindfulness is one of those things. Being a Gnostic is one of those things. Meditation. A lot of these things that we tie to a particular belief system ultimately don't have to have that stigma at all. We just choose to project that within it. So I do want to read off of uh, verse 13 of the Gospel of Thomas. I think it's a great story that encompasses this exact thing. And it's Jesus talking to some of his disciples, right? So he's talking to uh, Simon Peter, to Matthew, and to Thomas. And it goes like this. Jesus said to his disciples, Compare me and tell me who I am like. Simon Peter said to him, You are just like a just messenger. Matthew said to him, You are like an especially wise philosopher. Thomas said to him, Teacher, my mouth cannot bear at all to say whom you are like. Jesus said, I am not your teacher, for you have drunk, you have become intoxicated at the bubbling spring that I have measured out. And he took him and withdrew, and he said three words to him. But when Thomas came back to his companions, they asked him, What did Jesus say to you? Thomas said to them, If I tell you one of the words he said to me, you will pick up stones and throw them at me, and fire will come out of the stones and burn you up. This is a really, really fantastic story. And I mean, you know, in some of the canonical gospels, a story like this would take multiple verses maybe pages long uh, because those those canonical uh, gospels do go into certain details in some of these stories gospel of thomas just paraphrases and gives you just the punchline and so in many ways it can be a little tougher to understand because you're not getting a lot of this context within it right but for people reading this early on in christianity right in the first couple centuries of the of the first millennium the, the meaning would have been immediate, something that it would quickly understand, right? So there's there's different ways to interpret this. I have my own interpretation, and I know that there are other historians and, and philosophers that share the same idea that I have behind this. But one of the things that's often said about this particular verse is uh, that the reason why Jesus brings Thomas out to the side is because Thomas is the only one that truly understands what Jesus implies. But not fully. He cannot grasp it because in some respects he still feels like maybe Jesus is a physical manifestation of God. Like literally the Son of God, right? This is often what we hear about in, in Christianity, Jesus being the Son of God. And so some historians argue that this is what Thomas is saying to Jesus and that's why Jesus pulls him aside because for the majority of Gnostic sects, and there were many, right? So like the Valentinians, for example, there were very many. To some folks, 
Jesus literally was God. And this is how, you know, after the Council of Nicaea, this is the, the idea that we had. But for hundreds of years before that, most Christians didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He was simply a prophet. Now, I would argue that my interpretation is a little bit different from that. In some respects, I do think that that interpretation is correct. But what I feel like this is saying is that while Thomas may be the closest to understanding what Jesus is, he's going too far. And why is he going too far? Because he's giving up his authority. Right? Immediately, Thomas says, teacher, which Jesus immediately rebutes. I am not your teacher. You have drunk, you have become intoxicated at the bubbling spring that I have measured out. Jesus himself is not the spring. He's simply somebody that's guarding the spring, that's giving out pieces of water from the spring. Right? If you're thirsty, you come and get water. Right? Jesus is that person, the water bearer. He's giving you that water. And that's a very interesting metaphor, of course, because if you are familiar with like New Earth terminology, you know all about the Age of Aquarius, which is the water bearer. So I, I find that very fascinating as well. There's always a little bit of astrology connected to some of these deep, esoteric, mystical writings. Jesus is not the water himself. He's just the water bearer. And so Thomas partially understands the message, but he has gone too far. He has given his own authority away from himself and given it purely to Jesus. Jesus is his teacher. My mouth cannot bear it all to say whom you are. Why? Because maybe Thomas thinks he's divine. And so Jesus immediately corrects him. Yes, I am divine, but so are you. And what are the three words? Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Because the three words are not said in the text. And I wouldn't expect the three words to be said in the text, because if they were, this would not be a mystical mystery tradition. This would be a dumbed-down version that simply gives you the message. And of course, as we know with mystical traditions, the message is not given to you directly. Why? Because reality is not veiled from you. It is you who are veiled from seeing it. Remember that quote from the previous episode? And so if you become into this particular belief system, into this mystical tradition, then you would know what those three words are. And to me, the three words are very simple. Now, to us, it has become one word, but in the Hebrew tradition, it would have been the, the, the Y, the H, and the W, which, of course, has come to the term that we know today as Yahweh or Jehovah, is I, I think the more, more modern terminology is Jehovah, comes from Yahweh. And what does Yahweh mean? I am that I am. What does that sound like? Of course, it sounds like Tatavamasi. You are that. This is exactly what the name of God means. The name of God is that you are it. And here you have it in a Christian tradition. Who would have thunk, right? But that's because at the mystical core, all these ideas are all the same. It's just the interpretation of it among different people becomes different. And over time, some of that message is lost. It's like playing a giant game of telephone giant game of telephone. Think about how much has been lost of the message over 2,000 years. Now, yes, we have this stuff in writing, but we're not reading it in the original Aramaic or the original Coptic or the original Greek. We get translations, right? The Greek gets translated into Latin. The Latin gets translated into uh, later Latin. The Latin gets translated into Old English, into Middle English, into Modern English, and all the words become more and more diluted. 
And the metaphors change because ultimately what you read in a translation is simply an interpretation of the translator of the original text that may itself be a copy of a copy of a copy. So you see how these messages get lost? It's very easy to come up with like conspiracy theories about giant cults ruling the world or you know the Catholic Church doesn't want you to know the truth and this, that, and the other. Yeah, there is some of that, right? Because ultimately people in positions of power want to retain that power. And how do you do that? You veil the message, you dumb it down, you change a couple words where the meanings are not exactly the same, but they convey ultimately a similar message. Or maybe you simply take away a line, just like we saw in the, the difference between Aesop's fable and, and the version that Ruby tells. The real is not veiled from you, it is you who are veiled from seeing it. And, and how that becomes is ultimately because you allow it to be, right? Whether somebody takes words away from, from it or not, they purposely change it, or they simply translate it differently, they interpret it differently, ultimately that's all irrelevant because you give it your power by accepting that particular interpretation of the truth. But if you do your due diligence and you try to find where these things come from, what they ultimately mean, then you take that veil away from yourself and you see the truth. That's when you regain your ultimate authority within a particular religious, social, political system. You can still live within those things. Just because you are the ultimate authority, the ultimate it, the ultimate self, doesn't mean you cannot live within other aspects of self. That's important. That's what the Buddhists teach, right? When you, when you achieve enlightenment, when you get to nirvana, you can choose to either become a Buddha, in which you stay in that state, and that's fine. You can choose to do that. Or for most Buddhists, the better option is to become a bodhisattva, where you're still this enlightened Buddha, but you reintegrate yourself into society. You don't just become a hermit. You are back in society, and you try to show others how to live in that way. Now, of course, that message becomes diluted over time again, so some of this becomes religion. And you know, even though in the original core, Buddhists have no god, for example, after all these thousands of years, the Buddha has become kind of a god figure, right? And there's many Buddhas that are worshipped over certain other people. This happens with all belief systems. But the truth is still the same. You are it. It doesn't matter how that is interpreted. You are it. And what you do with that message is what ultimately matters. Do you choose to accept it or do you not? You know, in the canonical Gospels, we have something similar to you are it, but it's, it's veiled in different words that don't give it quite the same punch. Right? It's not simply just the I am that I am. Tatavamasi, you are it. You have, you are the light, the way, and the truth. Well, that's nice. But what does that mean? It's the same message, but the words give it a different connotation. I do want to kind of end on a Buddhist story. As you guys know, I love Buddhist stories. I think the Buddhists are fantastic storytellers. And I think the way they analyze the human condition is so far ahead of its time. I mean, I wouldn't be the first person to say that the, the original Buddhists were possibly like the, the first psychologists, right? A lot of the ideas that we get coming out in psychology, especially I say over the last 30 years as, as mindfulness and some of these other ideas come uh, more into the mainstream, you start reading some, some psychological papers, some studies, some textbooks, and you're like, this is like a, a very thinly veiled Buddhist text. 
But this relates perfectly to this discussion of authority and religion. And this is a, a story from, from the Zen tradition of Buddhism. And this highlights exactly how what the difference is when you when you know the truth, right? The quote unquote truth, truth with a capital T. When you understand the self, when you understand that you are it, when you understand that the world is simply an illusion created by ego, you have two choices. And these are the two choices. So I love this story. I love this story. One of my favorite Buddhist stories. The Master Benkei's talks were attended not only by Zen students, but by persons of all ranks and sects. He never quoted sutras, nor indulged in scholastic dissertations. Instead, his words were directly from his heart to the hearts of his listeners. His large audience angered a priest of the Nichiren sect because the adherents had left to hear about Zen. The self-centered Nichiren priest came to the temple determined to debate with Banke. Hey, Zen teacher, he called out. Wait a minute. Whoever respects you will obey what you say, but a man like myself does not respect you. Can you make me obey you? Come up beside me and I will show you, said Banke. Proudly, the priest pushed his way through the crowd to the teacher. Banke smiled. Come over to my left side. The priest obeyed. Now, said Banke, we may talk better if you are on the right side. Step over here. The priest proudly stepped over to the right. You see, observed Banke, you are obeying me, and I think you are a very gentle person. Now sit down and listen. This is a really important lesson, right? Because when you choose to partake in a particular belief system, you need to ask yourself this question. What is it that I'm getting into here? There's a lot of predators around the world, right? You hear about different gurus and teachers. Right? There's, there's been several uh, interesting news bits over the last couple of decades about, for example, different yoga teachers, different uh, Hindu teachers. But this is not exclusive to them. This happens all over the place, right? We have cults popping up all the time. I don't, I don't know how many cults exist at any given point. I, I think the FBI has got like a database of this stuff. They, they can probably tell you exactly because they research this stuff because it's in their interest to know and understand these groups exist to see if there's some kind of threat to their own authority. And of course, you only hear about some of these groups when stuff happens, right? Like when a group bombs a subway or... You know, a group murder somebody or, you know, s sexual assault allegations come out. That's when you hear about them. Otherwise, you probably don't hear much about these groups. But they exist and they've always existed and will always continue to exist because God is infinite. And therefore, the interpretations of the truth are infinite. Now, in the story, Banke realizes the truth, but he is speaking purely on his own authority. And I think that's number one, the key. Right. Now, in this podcast, of course, I talk a lot about other teachers. I'm giving those teachers my authority because it's a, a great way to give examples of how this kind of stuff works in, in reality. But in the story, you see, Banke doesn't, he doesn't read from sutras. He never quoted sutras nor indulged in scholastic endeavors. So he didn't write his own books. He didn't read papers. He didn't read other books. He didn't read the sutras, right? That would be the more important Buddhist books. He never quoted those. He simply spoke from his heart to the hearts of his listeners. Now, the Nichiren priest is very different. 
The Nichiris priest has the same understanding as Banke, but what he does with it is different. The Nichiren priest is acting out of ego, out of an individuated self. And Banke teaches him that that's not the way to go. Because he can easily give up his own authority, even an enlightened master like this Nichiren priest, right? Even he ends up giving his own authority to Banke. So when you look to a teacher, a guru, some YouTuber, somebody on a podcast, some book that you read, you need to ask yourself these questions. What is it that I'm being told here? What is the message and how is that message being conveyed? Is this person asking me to give up my own authority in order to follow them, or can I do this on my own? Because you can, because you are it. And there is no other self but you. You know, I mentioned solipsism earlier. I, I see myself kind of like a, a polysolipsist, which may seem a little counterintuitive if you know what solipsism is. Solipsism is the idea that only you exist, right? It's a, a thing that I think stemmed from Descartes. I'm sure it's been touched upon before by other philosophers. But it's the whole, you know, I think, therefore I am kind of thing, right? Where you can prove that you exist because you're here and you're thinking, but you can't prove that others exist because you're not in their mind. You're only in your own. And so this leads to kind of a, a very lonely existence when you think about it. If you are the only thing in existence and everything else is kind of an imagination, a projection of you. But this is kind of how it works. Except all those things are equally valid. And so that's why I like to think of it as a polysolipsist where everyone is simply an emerging aspect of an ultimate self. That's why I like that terminology, polysips, uh, polysolipsis. I don't know if it's a real thing. I don't know if I made it up or not, but I like it. And I think it works for this particular example. How much authority do you want to give up of yourself in order to understand what the ultimate nature of being is? That's not to say that it's not important to read books, to listen to teachers, to take a yoga class, a mindfulness class, meditation class, listen to podcasts, a YouTuber, you know, read a book, read tons of books, read ancient books, read modern books, write your own book. Now, one of my favorite sayings, like I said before, is uh, write your own gospel, live your own myth. Sure, all that stuff is very important. But at some point, you have to realize that all those things that you're reading and listening to and implementing in your life are not somebody else's ideas. They are your ideas because you are all of it. You are all of infinity. When you start putting all your faith and authority and power into somebody else, that means that there's something in between you and the ultimate nature of existence, something between you and God, and there is nothing because all there is is you. You are it. Always remember that. Yes, it's easy to give up your power. It's easy to let other people do the thinking and you just simply follow. That's very easy. That's the easiest thing to do in life. But you don't need to live that way. And this is not simply important in, in understanding why you believe the things you believe, why you're in the, the lot of life that you feel like you've been laid into. You weren't laid into it. You created it that way. You are living your own reality. And how you change that? It's very simple. And it goes to a fantastic Rumi quote. Yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. Because there is no difference. If you are all of it, you don't need to change what's outside. All you need to do is change what's inside, and the rest follows. This is when you discover what the Buddhists like to call the groundless ground. 
God contains all limitations within it, and you are simply one of those limitations. How do you overcome that? You begin by changing yourself, and the rest will follow. All right, that's going to wrap up this episode. I really hope you guys enjoy that. I know I love doing these. Uh, I, I love doing this podcast. This might be one of my favorite podcasts I've uh, I've ever tried to do. And I've I've done a lot of different topics. I usually I focus on on comic books and pop culture, for example. But but this is really something that I'm passionate about, and I hope that uh, I hope that that shows these discussions. So if you want to reach out, you would get in touch. Check out my Twitter, Minel Chemical. That's always the best place. I'm on Twitter all the time. I love it. It's a great place for conversation, if you allow it to be so, just like everything else. But it's the best place to reach me. I would love to get some feedback on the podcast, and I would love to feature your comments on the podcast. So if you go to the podcast description, there is a link on there where you can reach out and uh, leave me a voicemail. It's free. doesn't cost anything. You don't need to set up an account. There's no personal information given out. If you don't want it, all you need to do is send a voicemail. It comes into my podcast account, and I can just edit the file in. And again, that's also on my Twitter, so you can get the link directly if uh, for some reason it doesn't show up in your podcast description. I'm on Instagram, thealchemicalmind.com, and of course, you can feel free to email me if you want to just share some private thoughts, martin at thealchemicalmind.com. Thank you, as always, for listening. Next episode will be a really fun one. I hope you all enjoy it. As always, remember that you are it. 